Time to talk basketball right now with a basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. Steve, good morning. Good morning. You know, we've been juggling referring to you as our life insider for some of the conversations we've had over the past few months. But the games have started again. And a game started apparently without the Jazz knowledge, and they got worked Saturday. How much of that do you think is uh, just a one-off, it's one game, stuff happens? How much do you think that uh, this is reality for the Jazz? There's a gap between them and the elite teams. There's probably already a gap, but there's really a gap because of Bogdanovich being out. What do you think? I, I, I agree. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the thing about it is in order the Jazz, they don't have a lot of margin for error. And, uh, and and so the one thing that when you think about the Utah Jazz is that they're going to defend, that they're going to play together, that the culture is good, and all of those things. But at the end of the day, you expect this team. This team has to shoot the three ball well. And when you go 16 for 65, and they they can't beat the elite teams, they're going to have a hard time beating the mid division teams if they can't shoot the three ball better. So. Yes, they're they're in a situation right now where, you know, I think I think they've got their lineups. I think we know who's going to play. It's a matter of stepping up and guys knocking shots down when they're open. This is a team I expect to shoot thirty-eight to forty percent from the three. There is no way that they can move forward <clears throat> in the playoffs if they're not shooting the three ball well. They just do not have another a lot of other ways to score. And so you know, Gobert's going to have nights where he's around the rim and gets fifteen or sixteen. But really, Mitchell and Clarkson, you know, those are guys that need to knock shots down, and both of them were ice cold in both those games. So, uh, no, they're they're not an elite team. They can play against elite teams. They can beat elite teams, and, and the Pelicans certainly are not an elite team. Uh, Williamson only played 15 minutes, though they have a lot of guys that can shoot it and score it. But one thing about OKC, and I think there's been a lot, of, there's been a narrative about them for a while before that things kind of went away for three or four months, they're pretty good. And Chris Paul is obviously having one of the best seasons he's ever had. Shooter's a guard that can come in and, and, and do things. And my goodness, I mean, they're, they're blowing them out at halftime. They're shooting 65% from the field. So we don't normally think of the Jazz as a team that are going to give up that many points and a half. Uh, they've got to get back to defending, and they certainly have to get back to making some threes. Otherwise, this will be a really short stay. Yeah, I think that's obvious. I think you summed it up very well there, and it's apparent to everybody who's watching these games, and that's clearly what you've been doing, what we've been doing. When you look at three-point shooting and shots are not going in, as a coach, how do you approach that? you just say keep doing it, keep plugging away? Do you change stuff? What exactly can you do? I think a couple of things. First of all, you watch film and see how many of them are contested versus you know just wide open. And, and you had a little bit of both. I mean, the end of the in the shot clock threes being contested are certainly more difficult, though sometimes as a shooter, you just, in your mind, you don't think about anything. You just got to get it off and go. And sometimes we'll shoot better at the end of the shot clock just knowing I got to let it go that this is what's going to happen rather than thinking through things early in the shot clock. Should I take this or should I not take this? So that's the first thing I would look at to see, you know, how many of those were contested and what, what – Time in the shot clock were they taken? Were they desperation type threes? The Jazz to me appear to be a team that they're going to play together, and and they have good chemistry on the floor. That the good shooters, when they have an opportunity to shoot the three ball, should do that. 
It's not, you know, like we're going to work and look for a better shot. If they get a clean, open three, it, you know, if it's, it's Mitchell, it's Clarkson, it's Ingles, it's Conley, th- there should be no doubt. That mindset should already be set. Hey, we're running this action. We're coming off the ball screen, and they're sinking in and helping on Gobert or, or trying to stay in front of Mitchell, and all of a sudden somebody's wide open. You have to take open threes. Now, you know, it's one of those things as a coach, after a guy misses three or four, you know, you might sit him down, talk to him, get your head right, you're fine, those are good shots, and get him back in. Uh, you know, the, mind, the mindset of guys that are struggling shooting the ball is a really delicate thing. But the, the other thing I always try to do is when good shooters are not shooting the ball well, to try to get them maybe a mid-range or a layup or get to the free throw line, do something maybe where we can create an isolation where just making a free throw sometimes – one or two after getting fouled, it just relaxes the body. And you get, oh, okay, that basket starts looking bigger again. So with guys that you need to have 20 a night from, obviously you, you know, Clarkson and Mitchell and, and Conley are guys, you, you know you need to have 20 a night from those guys. Somebody's got to take those Bogdanovich minutes. Uh, when they get in kind of a funk or they're, they get cold, uh, find other ways for them to score. And then once that they're able to score, the basket looks bigger and bigger. And I, I just know that when I had really good players that were struggling, I try to get into the free throw line, isolate them, do something to get them to get comfortable again with seeing the ball go through the hoop. It's only a couple games into the restart here, so it might be a little too early, but uh... – and there's no home court, so playoff seating doesn't matter in a traditional way. The matchups still matter. Is there a matchup Jazz fans should be rooting to avoid? Is there a matchup Jazz fans should be rooting to get? Well, you're, you're looking at three through seven here, and, um, and they could play any one of these teams. And, and, and you look at Denver, uh, I think, you know, I, I, I like the Jazz against Denver. Um, I, I mean, they got. I, I think they match up with them athletically. I think that they're they're a team that they can you know that they could beat. OKC, you know, they they got, just got drilled by them. But I I think certainly, in my mind, OKC may be the most improved team. When you consider that they lose two All Stars, and they're forty one and twenty four, and just beat a good Jazz team. Mind you, it's you know it's been two or three or four months since we've played. I mean, last night Houston uh, has a huge win. Um, and, and the Jazz haven't had a lot of great luck against them. Um, I think if, if I'm picking a team, I, I, I want to play probably. I want to play Denver, and, and obviously they're they're really good. But uh, it, it's one of those things that that's probably who I'd want to play if you want to just pick one team. Uh, I don't think that uh, you know they're not going to play. I, I don't. I don't know. Dallas is a team that I think is young enough can score. That that is certainly a good matchup. Houston and OKC are both matchups that um, they got, they've got outstanding guard play. They've got some veteran guys. Uh, those are things I would want to avoid. So I'd say that Denver and Dallas would be the two teams I think that they match up with. Hey, Utah's capable of beating any of those teams. But if they're not going to shoot the three ball well, and they've they got to beat people defensively and win games in the high 80s and low 90s, uh, it probably doesn't matter who they're going to play. It's going to be it's going to be a tough go. So, and I, I expect them to turn this thing around. I expect them to start shooting the ball better. But <clears throat> we don't have a, you know, you only got two games to look at. So we'll, we'll see what happens here going forward. They've got the Lakers. 
you know, in a situation where um, the Lakers are a little bit vulnerable. And uh, I, I, obviously, it's a handful for the Jazz, but uh, the, the Lakers are a little bit up and down as well. So we'll learn a little bit more about this team. But, you know, a big win tonight by the Jazz, finding a way to beat the Lakers when probably no one expects them to, could do a lot for confidence going forward. Did you have a chance, Steve, to check out what the Pac-12 players put on that Players' Tribune as far as making some <laughs> demands of the Pac-12 or boycotting the football season? So I've read about it, but I haven't read anything specifically. So there is a document out now that shows what they're demanding. Yeah, why don't you summarize it for them, DJ? Uh, they're looking for uh, better health care and guarantees there. They're looking uh, to reduce the salaries of coaches and administrators. They're looking for a revenue sharing up to 50%. Um, I mean, that's the gist of it. I think I'm forgetting one item. There's a fourth point. So what is the primary source? I thought this was about, is it about players and attorneys, or is this about who's making these demands? Well, it started apparently with one, as far as I know, unidentified athlete at Cal. It spread from Cal to Stanford, UCLA, and Oregon. Now there's apparently 400 athletes who've signed on. Now when push comes to shove, will 400 stand their ground or fold? You know, that remains to be seen. They wrote an article in the Players' Tribune. The Pac-12 has not heard directly from them. They expect to today. So th- there's a lot more questions than answers out there right now. Yeah, I mean... Oh, oh I know like the other a- thing. They wanted to spend uh, 2% of the money of the budget on uh, uh, fight, uh, fighting racism. That was the other thing, 2%. Okay. Oh, and I'm, 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 I'm really good with that. But I think some of the other things that I didn't know that players could have input in terms of salaries and those kinds of circumstances, whether it be from administrators or coaches, that's, that's an interesting dynamic there. Um, you know what? I, I think, I, I, listen, I love the fact that people are passionate about things and they feel like things that are broke needs to be fixed. <clears throat> I'm not an expert on the PAC 12 and what the circumstances of that conference are, but I'll be honest with you. They, they better hope they have a season. So right now, you know, what, what's being done legislatively, what's being done behind the scenes, uh, I don't know if this is the time to attack administrators and attack, uh, uh, you know, executives in the conference office when they're trying. I mean, obviously, it's really important to these universities to, to, have, a, to have basketball season this year and to move forward. You're in California. You, you, there's no guarantees. Right now in California – the first, I know, community college football games start in February. And right now there's a high school basketball season that is going to start in March. And, you know, that's if things progress and get better. And then right now the Division Two, <clears throat> there's no sports in Division Two for at least uh, till January 1. And I don't think we resolve the football situation with, with the Pac-12 or anybody, anybody. So right now they've got a lot of other issues in my mind. I, I, I don't have an issue with people wanting to make change and when there's, something's broke or something's not right. But the timing of this, uh, when everybody's got their hands tied behind their back, especially in California, and it's a different state. And no, nobody's happy. I mean, New York kind of did the right things and got people doing right. But right now, California, I don't think Governor Newsom I mean, we're, we're still working on can't have more than 10 people together, social distancing, and, 
you know, people have gotten smart about restaurants. You know, they just take the parking lot and put a couple of tents up and tables and chairs. But it, it's, it's a very, very, very tough time here in California for businessmen and people and generally just the, the 40 million people that live here. It's a really difficult thing. And uh, it's, it's almost like it feels like it's piling on when we're in the middle of a COVID and everything's upside down. And I don't know that everybody has the correct perspective on this and the timing of it just, I don't know. I mean, I understand the timing of, of, of racism and that, those kind of things, and they should be addressed immediately. But these things seem to be a lot more about monetary. And I'm not talking about 2% going to fighting racism. Hey, I would up that number. We, we, we need to do more there. But uh, getting involved in, in the salaries or the, whatever the circumstances are, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me right now. There's got to be another day and another time for that. Let's, let's figure out how we can keep our student athletes and our coaches safe and be able to play and watch the sports that we love to watch. We hear a lot about how the players, the college players, should be getting more. They're not getting enough. In your view, what actually is a scholarship worth? Well, I mean, there's a monetary value, and so it's, it's the tuition of school. It's, uh, it, let me tell you, I, I wish I was coaching right now. They eat, they're eating a lot more food than they used to when I was coaching. You know, they, they provide a diet for them. They provide health care for them in the sense that uh, they're uh, looking at their, their entire self. You know, it's, it's, the nutrition piece is a really important part. Obviously, all the strength and conditioning. So all the resources to help people develop. Uh, is is all part of that scholarship. Obviously, housing, travel, you know. And I, listen, I remember coaching, and when I first went to BYU, and that our stipend, our daily stipend. And I'll just I'll, I'll throw out a number. Let's say the number was twenty dollars per kid per day. I, I don't know, remember what it was, but I remember that the University of Utah was double that whatever the number was. And my kids were, the players would come and Hey, what's up with this? You know, they, they get this, they get this from because they all knew each other. You know, these are, these are guys that went to school against each other. They're always talking. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We get like $50 a day per diem. You only get 22, <laughs> you know, whatever the numbers were, but there were big differences. And then, and there were shoe contract situations that were different and guys got more shoes than our guys got. I mean, those were things that players came to me about. And, and really, it, not something that I was real knowledgeable about. I was trying, we were trying to figure out how to win games and get the best players in there that we could. But once things get rolling, you know, they start noticing that they've got a certain Nike outfit on that we don't have and, or they're wearing Adidas or, you know, whatever it might be. So it's not, it's not new for players to be concerned about what they're getting. And, and certainly the, the stipend is different, and I think it'll continue to grow because, yeah, um, I do believe that the compensation should be it should be increased, but not not to the point where uh, I think those are the things we sit down, we have conversations about threatening to not play. Is that we've already got to that point? That's that's what's surprising to me. Okay, because we're in an atmosphere and an environment where we're making demands, all of a sudden we're going to do that at every level. I think let's slow down, take a step back. I think there should be conversations about all those things. But all of a sudden, you're going to demand that, okay, we're not going to do this or we're not going to play. Uh, it, it never ends up being good for either side. And so hopefully cooler heads will prevail, that we'll, we'll get some mediation. We'll try to get to the bottom of it and find out what it is. Right now, you know, everybody's on a, in a really on an emotional 
uh, fervor about a lot of things, and most and many of them very justified. But to let it play out right now when they're just trying to see if we're even going to have games, it seems to be that this would be something that you would want to deal with, you know, kind of after the season and work through it seriously, conscientiously. I think the players feel like, hey, they're not going to meet our demands. We're not going to play. Well, okay, who, who wins there and who loses there? When you really start thinking about what you're giving up, the student-athletes, I think, can move forward and make their demands and do their things, but they need to do it intelligently and, 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 a, and with the perspective that we, we need a commitment from the administration, we need a commitment from the governor, we need a commitment from the state of California that things are going to change and be better. And, and somehow they've got to find a happy medium there and find a balance because right now it's, it's just kind of he said, she said, you don't do this, we're going to do that. It's already volatile enough in our country. Is, is there not enough wrong right now in our country already where we're just going to throw this on top of it as well? And I'm not, and I'm not talking about the racism. I, mean, I know there are issues with race on college campuses. And, and if that's part of Black Lives Matter or whatever else, fine. That, that's fine. Deal with that. But all the other, uh, I, I think the timing is just – this just doesn't seem real appropriate to me. Steve Cleveland, join us here. Last thing before we let you go, uh, there's stories, there seems to be momentum building. We spoke with Dennis Dodd, who writes for CBSSports.com. The Power Fives have really had it with the NCAA. What does a split look like? How much does that change college sports? What do you think when you hear that? Well, um, I've always been... I've always kind of felt that we're moving forward to uh, there's some things that are a little bit archaic about the NC2A, and they've had such control. And I, and I, I don't know that I'm going to tell you today that I think that we should disband the NC2A, create our own organizations with our conferences, and have, have a different look at mediation and the, the, the breaking of rules and all of those things. But there have to be some changes. And I think that the, these P5 conferences are the ones that are generating all the income, uh, whether it's the NC2A tournament or it's national, you know, it's football, whatever it might be, those, those two are paying all the bills. And so I, I'm not, I would not be opposed to, to having an open ear and listening and finding out that perspective. And I, uh, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough to tell you what, what the P5, I mean, I understand the gist of what they want. And basically it's like, hey, we can do our own thing. We can create our own organization. Uh, again, let's sit down and, and have these conversations. But I could see a day, some, I, could, I could actually see a day in the future where the NC2A, as it looks today, doesn't look at all like that. And, uh, and, and as we go forward, it becomes more and more difficult. You see every day schools drop in sports, not just because of the COVID. Every year, schools cannot financially take care of themselves. And a lot of different and good leagues where they have to drop sports and mandates from the NC2A that you have to have this many sports and this many sports. And certainly we want equality between men and women. But uh, right now there's a lot of challenges in the NC2A as well. So, I'm, I'm really actually inter- very interested to see what goes forward with these P5 conferences. I mean, those, the, the beauty of college sports at the Division II, NAIA, you know, Division Three, they serve a lot of people and do a lot of good for, for pe- young people around, around this country. Uh, but all of that takes a lot of money. And I, I can just 
tell you from my perspective in California, there's a number of Division II, NIA, you know, I read all the time, dropping sports, dropping sports, because there's the revenue, the revenue is not there. They're, they're, it's a challenging time. And even for the mid-majors uh, in terms of football, I mean, I look at Fresno State here, and they've had really had some really good teams. They didn't have a real good year this, uh, a year ago, but they've had some good teams. They've got a stadium with about 30-some thousand people, and they struggled to get 20,000 in that. And times are different. The community is different. But, you know, you, you, there's a, the questions are asked all the time here in this community when they had a really proud football program here. I mean, had Pat Hill did some great things when he was here. And right now they're struggling to fill half the stadium. So when they're filling half the stadium and not selling corporate sponsorships, that doesn't, that doesn't impact football that much. What it impacts is the other 10 sports that it supports. Same thing with basketball. Right now at the university here, that, that all of a sudden there's a different fan base and people can't afford it. They're, they're not taking the time and the commitment. It's more of a commuter school. Well, Fresno State isn't just, I mean, it's, it's not isolated here. There are lots of universities like Fresno State where we see people can't afford to even go to games anymore. And, and so what we're going to do to create that, and it's hard to fundraise and do development these days at any school especially in these times. So those are all challenges and problems that uh, uh, you know, maybe we'll get a different set of eyes and a different set of brains that look at this from a different perspective. And I just think 10 years from now, college athletics could, be, could have a really, really different look than it does today. And there are, there are some obvious changes that have to take place. And hopefully people look at it from the perspective of what's best for our country, what's best for these young people, and what's the best way we can do this? Maybe we need to get to more, you know, it's happening all the time, where all of a sudden you don't have a, a soccer program that's intramural, but they still compete with colleges, but we can't fund it. You know, I'm not picking on soccer because we all played soccer sometime in our life, right? But whatever the sport is, uh, I, I just see that landscape changing really dramatically here. I just, I fear that we're going to do knee-jerk reaction and do things that would long-term hurt college sports. So I hope that, Everybody will just take a deep breath in all these areas and uh, calmer minds and brains will take over and they can resolve some of these issues. They don't get resolved overnight, and, but, but certainly let's get smart people in the room that don't have agendas and uh, to try to solve some of these problems. Steve, thanks for the time. We appreciate it as always. All right, guys. Have a good week.